Good morning, gentlemen. Have you guys ever noticed um, as you're living out your life that whenever really tough things are they're standing right in front of you, there's a kind of this temptation to lose a little bit of your hope. Anybody notice that? Our marriage isn't going well, and so we we do, we conclude in our minds that uh, hey, we weren't meant to be together. Or, my job's really hard, and so there's no future for me there. And my kid doesn't seem like he's saved, and so. Maybe he's just not one of the elect. Or there's pride flags flowing all over the country. So Jesus Christ has no authority on earth. Or maybe I'm sick. Or I'm hurting physically. And it won't stop. These are circumstances and really tough things that tempt us to walk away from our hope. Back in 1861, right before the American Civil War, the the hard thing on the horizon, one of our American poets named Emily Dickinson, she wrote a, a poem about hope. She wrote, Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And the sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land, she writes, and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity, it asked a crumb of me. Hope, she says, sings the tune without the words. How is your hope today? Do you lead your family in hope? Do you minister to your wife in hope this morning? I know from my own personal experience that hope, even though at times it seems like it's perched in my soul, so to speak, at other times it seems like a little bird that actually just flies away. How do you handle criticism? What happens when you, in your mind when you get laid off from a job or, 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 or if you get fired from a job because you're the one that messed up? Where's your hope? Where do you turn and how do you function when you seem forgotten when you seem anonymous and when you seem irrelevant, where's your hope that day? It seems like the times when life is hardest and when you're exhausted and when there's a mountain of crazy obstacles right in your path against your spiritual growth, it seems, and you're wondering if faithfulness to God is really even worth it. And it seems like you're standing alone. And you're outside the plan that at least you had for your life, especially in Christ. You wonder, is God really even there? You're frustrated. You ask yourself, are his promises really trustworthy when I can't feel it? Can I stand on them? Does does he keep his word even if it seems like he's not even there? Where do you... Find hope. How can you have unwavering steadfastness even in hard circumstances? Even if it seems he's absent. I want to point you to the word of God this morning. If you could turn to Genesis 37. God's word is where we find true hope that perches in our souls. The life of Joseph in the pages of Genesis, exemplifies steadfastness of hope in the face of 
really hard things. And even in the chillest land or the, or the strangest sea, like our poet wrote. Let me read our passage for this morning. Genesis 37, 1 through 4. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back an evil report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, so they hated him, could not speak to him in peace. From the beginning of Joseph's life and well beyond its end, Joseph lived in hope. Starting from Genesis 37, clear to the end of Genesis, and then off into Exodus even, Joseph teaches us, about a steadfastness of hope, like hope shining like a city on a hill, faithfully lived out of his life, lived out by the assurance of things he hoped for and the conviction of things that he hadn't seen. We'll find as we go that the the sum of his life points beautifully and ultimately to the object of his faith, and ours as well, the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ. We need to be careful, though, looking at Joseph's life. Joseph's story isn't a story that's merely about morality. It isn't a story even about being stoic and and hard things and, and living in our own strength. And it isn't simply a story about how to react to haters and idiots It's or even our own failures in life. It's not a story about that. Really, it doesn't boil down to being about us at all, although it will help us. Joseph's story is really a story about the faithfulness of our great God. Joseph's story is key to our understanding the thread of God's working with humanity throughout redemptive history. It's about God making his command for Adam's dominion to come about in reality on this earth. It's a key thread in carrying out his Genesis 3 promise to destroy the works of the devil and bring about hope through the seed of a woman. Joseph lived his life knowing God's word. And more specifically, he lived out his life that you can see from Genesis 37 and beyond. He lived out that life based on the covenant promise that God made with Abraham. God had told Abraham, by the way, he said, go forth from from Abraham's land and from his kin and from his father's house to the land which God would show him. He said, I will make you a great nation, Abraham, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, Abraham. And I will bless those who bless you. And and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the promise that Joseph lived out in his life. And and you'll see as you continue to read through his life that in a sense that this blessing was in a certain scale realized in Egypt under Joseph's reign, but even more so now is now being realized as God's kingdom expands to fill this whole planet with God's glory through the glorious gospel of the greater Joseph, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, that Pastor Dale just mentioned. 
Not only does Joseph's story exemplify the right outworking of the first earthly man's assigned purpose, but it exemplifies the rule and reign of the second or heavenly man as he subdues the earth where he now holds all authority. The earth, the same place that he has assigned you and I to participate in his dominion as we make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that he's commanded us. Joseph lived his life by the word of God. His feet moved in his life based on trust in the word of God. To put it like Hebrews talks, he, Joseph like others, saw the promise from a distance. And and then he carried out his life based on that promise. That promise of God informed what he did, how he moved his feet. Have you ever thought about, for you, what would it look like to your life today with sincere confidence that Jesus Christ's kingdom will penetrate and grow to overtake every other kingdom on earth? If you had that confidence, if you knew that that would for sure be the end, how would it change your hope? How would it move your footsteps? How would you interpret hardships in that case? Our friend Joseph, he endured very hard things by the word of God. Joseph's hope stood firmly on the promise of God, on the covenant of God. Joseph's belief in the faithfulness of God and his promise to people even informed his direction to his descendants regarding his own bones, what they were going to do with his bones after he passed away. Joseph lived and he died by faith in the promise still to come from his perspective. How can we do that? Like Abraham, by, by faith, um, he saw what was coming from a distance, and he, he lived out his life as if he were a citizen of that heavenly kingdom, that heavenly city that was yet to come from his perspective. The same heavenly citizen, uh, or heavenly city of your and my citizenship as we looked back in faith, in the work of our great Savior and King, Jesus Christ. In that sense, Joseph's hope looking forward was built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, just like ours. If you decide to read through the rest of his life after today, you'll see that Joseph's living hope in the faithful word of the living God more specifically helped him endure murderous rejection from his and, and hatred of his own brothers like his savior would eventually his his living hope informed his response to being sold twice into slavery and being falsely accused by liars after enduring crazy temptation and thrown into prison and seemingly forgotten but then as crazy as it sounds he was exalted to reign over a nation providing bread and wine to the known world, life to the world, all under the sovereign hand of his great God. What a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. I'm reminded from 1 John this morning that this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
This is what Joseph exemplified through his life. With all things, God is, or with, with God, all things are possible. Amen. God keeps His word. We move our feet in hope that by that assurance, and, and we move our feet under that type of conviction today. A little about Joseph's background. Joseph was the son of Jacob. Jacob was also called, at times he was called Israel. Joseph was one of 12 sons, each later named as a tribe of Israel. Plus he had a sister named Dinah. His dad Jacob, you might remember, was the son of Isaac, Jacob's brother Esau. Uh, Isaac's, uh, Jason, he had a brother named Esau. Isaac's dad was Abraham, and in a sense, the father of all who believe. And Abraham came from the line of Shem, Noah's son, clear back to, through Seth to Adam. Joseph wasn't in the line of the Messiah, but through his life, he was used by God to preserve that line. And Joseph's mom was Rachel, which is a whole story in itself. Very interesting. You should read that. He was a miracle baby. Uh, given to Rachel through the kind hand, the wonderful grace of God. She named him Joseph, which means, may Yahweh give me another son. Isn't that interesting? And God eventually did give her another son, and she unfortunately died giving birth to, to Jacob's last son, Benjamin. This morning as we enter the text in Genesis 37, let's take a look. Uh, look down at your Bibles in verse 1. The text says, it says, Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. Jacob was in the land of Canaan. And, and more specifically, he was in Hebron, uh, which is actually in modern-day Israel. It's about 20 miles south of Jerusalem, kind of centered between Gaza Strip over there on the left and then um, the Dead Sea over on the right. And Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they were sort of Bedouin people in that they were nomadic. And so they moved around with their livestock, or they sojourned, as the text says. They kind of lived in each place in a temporary manner. Uh, Hebrews refers back to this lifestyle in a spiritual way. In Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Abraham sojourned in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham sojourned looking to something more, looking to a promise fulfilled. Talking about the specific land that they were sojourning in, in Genesis 17, God told Jacob's grandpa Abraham, he said, I will give to you and to your seed after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Again, in Genesis 28, Isaac was blessing Jacob. He said, may God also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your seed with you that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. And then we we know it didn't end there. The, The Abrahamic covenant says that all the nations of the world will be blessed through his seed. And in Romans 4, Paul calls Abraham the actual heir of the whole world instead of just that fine spot. Back to verse 1, Genesis 37. We can see for now they were sojourning in the land of Canaan and occupied territory. And at the same time, located along the trade routes connecting Asia and Europe and Africa in the immediate Middle East. And, and you can see if you read beyond our passage today, people from other regions would be passing 
through here, even slave traders uh, from the Ishmaelites and the Midianites all headed for Egypt. Alexandria was a big deal place in the future from Joseph. Uh, Canaan was a central spot on the, play, the, the map, and it's where Joseph's story begins. Here's what the landscape around that area looks like today. Um, back to our text, verse 2 continues and says, These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back an evil report about them to their father. So here Joseph's story begins. It's the, it's the story of the generations of Jacob. And when the scriptures refer to the generations or to generations like this, it's really a reference to what their lives or their existence in general generated. This is why Genesis is called Genesis. For example, in Genesis 2.4, it's kind of an interesting one. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh made earth and heaven. Interesting. And in a sense, this is the structure of Genesis, and it's beautiful. And the personal, relational Lord God, literally Yahweh, is he's at the center of it all. The ESV Study Bible identifies 11 times that generations are referred to. And here in Genesis 37, 2 is one of those generations by the sovereign hand of our great God it's what comes forth from the life of Jacob these are the generations of Jacob so back to verse 2 Joseph when 17 years of age was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth and I know a lot of our in, in a lot of our minds uh, we um, have Joseph as kind of a bratty little kid at this point But when you think about it, 17 years old, I have a 17-year-old, 17 years old as a young man, capable of critical thinking, capable of having real responsibilities. But but, but some of the cartoon recreations of Joseph's life tend to, they kind of show him as a pipsqueaky little brat. But I don't believe Joseph was a little brat. He was a responsible young man with real duties and wisdom to make, help him make decisions. And even better, later we find that the Spirit of God is with him. And here in verse 2, when the text says that Joseph was still a youth, this word for youth, I, w- I want to show you something. This is the same Hebrew word that was used later in the book of Ruth. Let me show you an example. Uh, Ruth 2, 4 through 6, it says, Now behold, Boaz... From Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May Yahweh be with you. And they said to him, May Yahweh bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, that's the same Hebrew word, by the way, translated youth in Joseph's case. He, this young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? The young man, again, the same word, in charge of the reapers, in charge of the reapers, uh, still, the, uh, she is a young a Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the fields of Moab. This, this young man, he worked for Boaz here in Ruth. He had a position of authority. And we're going to see likewise with Jacob and his son Joseph in a position. He put his son Joseph in a position of trusted authority as well. Joseph was 17. He was a young man. And he was put in a place of authority. I'm going to pause for a second um, just to think a little bit about this. 
you younger guys here this morning. I'm talking to the Fairfield boys, Christian, the Shelton kids, everybody else that I don't remember your name. Uh, younger people, please see in Scripture that, it, that it's not just that you have potential to be used by God in his kingdom. Maybe some point after you grow up, there's that potential. It's, but for someone willing to walk in hope today, someone willing to respond to his word with assurance and conviction in his life, the Lord can use you. A young person like you, willing to walk out the truth of God's word by faith, it's not only just something when you grow up. And, and for years now, just for instance, I've, I've watched the ministry up at Kokolala Bible Camp up by Sandpoint um, do this exact same thing. And, and unfortunately, sometimes we train up people to share the gospel. And, and in reality, we surround ourselves with so many other Christians that we never have a chance to put feet on what we've learned. But I've seen at Kokolala this real boots-on-the-ground forum for the Lord to use young people just like you guys. And bring other people into salvation, into a relationship with Christ to the glory of God. You can be used this way. You're not only the future of the church, but like Pastor Dale says every Wednesday night, you are the church. The hands and feet of Christ whose throne is in heaven and earth is his footstool. Please believe that. Please study his word. Know his gospel. Lead others to Christ with hope. Be confident that his great commission will be carried out. Reign with him in that sense. Wield the sword of his word in this earth. In fact, guys, you even have permission to embarrass your parents with what you do with the gospel of Jesus Christ as you share it with everybody that you come across. Bless God's heart young guys, by testifying of his son Jesus and with expectant hope that that word of the gospel will bear fruit. Back to verse 2. Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, it says he was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. I want to look a little closer at what's happening here. You might remember from reading through Genesis, that Jacob started family life after he and his mom, um, Isaac, excuse me, he and his mom deceived Isaac into giving the blessing to Jacob, which was actually, this was all actually under the sovereign hand of God, but they deceived Isaac. Jacob's brother Esau wasn't happy about it. Esau planned to kill Jacob because of this deception. And on a side note, the Reformation Study Bible describes Esau as a profane, rough and ready man of the field who short-sightedly gratifies his appetite and despises the family's future inheritance. Despite his dishonesty, Jacob has far-sightedness to value this inheritance. Jacob was being clever. He was being strategic. Esau didn't really care about God's promise, but Jacob did. So after these circumstances went down, Isaac's wife, Rebekah, told Jacob to flee to her brother's house for safety. So to move things along quickly, what did Rebekah do? She helped Isaac, in a sense, make a decision to send him off uh, to, uh, with the excuse of finding a wife. So while he was fleeing from Esau's wrath, Jacob was also on the hunt for a wife. This is Joseph's dad. 
So Jacob went to Laban's house and he ran into a girl named Rachel, Laban's daughter, and she was the girl for him. And through a long chain of events, Jacob finally ended up with Leah, Laban's older daughter, along with Leah's maidservant, Zilpah, and eventually Rachel, too, along with her maidservant, um, Bilhah. Jacob, Joseph's dad, labored with expectant hope. His original intentions were to have Rachel, but he ended up with four wives and 13 kids. So back to Joseph, Rachel's son. He was in the field working with the flock with his brothers, along with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Remember, these were the maidservants, uh, not the, the main wives, I guess, is, for lack of a better term. The sons of Bilhah and Zilpah were Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher. The text doesn't say this, but I wonder, like maybe you would wonder, if being the sons of a maidservant as opposed to the one Jacob really loved, Rachel, caused some sort of animosity is is kind of the backdrop of their other relational problems that you'll learn as you read further in the text. And that's a good question, and and it makes sense probably, but but that was a different culture, and you can't be 100% sure, but but it's it's a possibility. Back to verse 2, Joseph was helping pasture the flock, and at the end of the verse, of verse 2, it says, Joseph brought back, an evil report about them to their father. An evil report. What's that? What's an evil report? The ESV translated that as, as a bad report. Based on Strong's definition of the Hebrew, this isn't necessarily in the realm of lying about his brothers. I don't believe it's Joseph being evil, by the way. But it's more likely sharing distressing news or a bad report card about his brother's performance as stewards of their father's flock. Jacob had entrusted his brothers with duties, and he put Joseph in the position of reporting back about that. As we keep going through the test, we, we look at other later accounts of Joseph's interactions, his interactions with his brothers. It's most likely that his report to his father in this case was accurate and probably a necessary thing to tell him. Joseph was a responsible young man. I want to illustrate this from another passage. In 1 Samuel 2, you might remember Eli, the priest, had two sons, right? The text says in 1 Samuel 2.22, it says, Now Eli was very old, and he heard that all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Things had gotten bad. So he said to them, why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the people of Yahweh passing about. In that case, the people of Israel were bringing an evil report back to Eli about his sons. And Eli needed to hear it, right? In our case here with Joseph, Jacob very possibly needed to hear it. Joseph was Jacob's boots on the ground, in a sense. And and in hope, Joseph carried out his father's assignment, even when his brothers weren't pleased with him. Nevertheless, he moved his feet. The great James Montgomery Boyce comments on this, and he says, This has been construed as tattling, but Joseph was not so much a tale-bearer as a truth-teller. 
It was his responsibility to report to his aging father what was actually going on. Joseph was faithful even when it was painful. We need to see that in God's word. Later in our Bibles in John 1, John speaks of a greater Joseph, Jesus Christ, who he says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overtake it. Light is his righteousness and his goodness shining like the sun through us, like it did with Joseph. And light shining into and exposing dark places is what Joseph did with regard to his brothers. His brothers' lousy performance and their faulty stewardship was the dark place that needed to be exposed. And later, Jesus, God's faithful son, exposed the faulty stewardship of his own, the leaders of Israel. And like with Joseph, when they were exposed for what they truly were, they had murderous intentions, just like Joseph's brothers, the, the tribes of Israel before them. Jesus exemplified hope when he walked through these exact same things, even the, the, the real things instead of the things only pointed, that pointed to those things. Let's return to verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. Notice that the text uses the, the name Israel instead of Jacob here in verse 3. Did you notice that? Isn't that interesting? The first time in Scripture where that name Israel occurs is in Genesis 32, and it's just after the time where Jacob, Joseph's dad, was coming home from his years in Laban's house and where he started his family, and, and he was really concerned about what was going to happen when he ran into Esau's brother especially with regard to the safety of himself and for his family. and So in, historically, Jacob was a guy that took care of business on his own. It, he was a deceiver. He had his wits about, or excuse me, he was a clever guy, and he had his wits about him. Uh, back in Genesis 32, though, as he was approaching Esau, his brother, who wanted to kill him, Jacob had this interesting encounter with God, and it changed him forever. The name Jacob means heel catcher or deceiver. But in the middle of his fear, as he's approaching his brother, coming back home, when he couldn't control the circumstances, and when he came to the end of himself, and when he was alone, he faced his great God. He literally came face to face with God as he's coming home. He wrestled with God. He, Jacob had struggled his whole life. And, and now he was struggling in the face of God. And God changed him through that struggle. And seeking God's blessing, God handicapped Jacob. God weakened Jacob. In Genesis 32, the angel of the Lord said to Jacob, he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob was radically transformed through his face-to-face -face or personal encounter with God. He was wounded. Jacob was wounded. His own strength was tempered. Older guys here like me, is this your experience? In his blessing, has he wounded you? 
Maybe I can encourage you from the Psalms, Psalms 46.10. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Israel, or Jacob, is, was a man who had ceased striving with men and now strived with God. And as a result, he trusted in the promise of God. And as he approached his brother Esau now in the fear of the Lord instead of the fear of men. I think there's a pathway each of us is on instead of conniving and instead of manipulating and instead of trying to control everyone and everything around us because somebody has to be right and why not me? But instead of that, there's a point of maturity in a godly man's life where you learn to yield our, your life to our great God, wounded, so to speak, weakened so that his power can be perfected in our weakness. Remember from Scripture, affliction brings about perseverance. Perseverance brings about proven character, and proven character brings about hope. After that encounter, Jacob, or Israel, worshipped leaning on his staff now. He worshipped. I know you'll remember the Apostle Paul Maybe Jacob would say, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Let's all learn to say that. Hope has feet. It changes the way you walk. Back to Genesis 37 in our short passage this morning, again from verse 3. Uh, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. Remember how Abraham had a son of his old age as well. Do you remember that? He and Sarah's bodies were as good as dead in their old age, and, and Isaac was their miracle baby, and the baby born based on God's promise. Even when they knew they were too old to have any kids, Joseph, in a sense, was that for Jacob now. Rachel hadn't had any kids, and she was desperate to add to the family, to give Jacob a son from her own uh, body, and she ended up with that kind of uh, kind of a weird competition with her sister Leah, where she started to have her husband and her maidservant come together and make babies so that she could call, kind of call her own, uh, call them her own babies, almost like Sarah and Hagar and Abraham. This kind of seems like it ran in the family in a sense. Joseph, or excuse me, Joseph was Jacob and Rachel's miracle baby. And not only because Joseph was old, although as we both know, his um, old dads do sometimes father, ch father children, uh, but, but because he came in as a special blessing from the hand of God. He was special. Instead of manipulating her circumstances to produce something good, God gifted Rachel a son and Jacob a son. So the text says Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. Joseph was special in Jacob's eyes. Back to verse 3. Again, the text says that he was, Joseph was the son of Jacob's old age, and he made him this very colored tunic. A tunic is kind of a piece of clothing. I think we have a, like an example of a tunic up on the screen. For your, it, it's kind of for your upper body. It reaches down towards your knees. Um, sometimes they were long-sleeved, and sometimes they were 
uh, had designs woven into them. And, and, and you can imagine some tunics would just be common and be kind of in a, in, worn in a way like we wear T-shirts today. And others would be worn almost like a uniform. Tunics that were almost considered holy in a, in a way, like a symbol of authority, almost like a, a police uniform works today. You and I can, can spot a police officer in a crowd in two seconds, can't we? Especially if we have a guilty conscience. That, the uniform in, in that crowd has an air of authority to it. And so later, under the Mosaic Covenant as well, the Levitical priests were required to wear a tunic of checkered work as part of their uniform. So the God, the, this God-ordained tunic set the Levitical priests apart uh, for the purpose of serving the Lord in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And so here in Genesis 37.3, this tunic that Joseph wore was a symbol of his duty under the authority of his father. Joseph was given a special uniform to be worn under the authority carrying out the tasks that his father assigned him. And it wasn't, by the way, this isn't some sort of, like they call it today, like a technicolor dream coat or something like that with magical powers. It was more like a specially designed, ornamented tunic that was given to Joseph as a symbol of authority that he would wear. And it was the authority that he was assigned through his father's word as a special stewardship of what his father wanted him to carry out. John MacArthur also adds that it marked the owner as the one whom the father intended to be the future leader of the household, an honor uh, normally given to the firstborn son. And as we'll see through the text over, uh, over your time, as you read further in Joseph's life, that Joseph would certainly become the revered leader of the house, wouldn't he? But for now, wearing this special symbol of honor in authority when his brothers were just normal guys out in the field, and probably at some level because they're normal sons, they want the respect of their father. But here's Joseph has this special symbol of authority. This whole situation ended, ended up being a massive mess in their sinful response to Joseph's assignments. Look back at verse 4. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, so they hated him and could not speak to him in peace. Who here has been so angry and so bitter? So, Have you ever been so upset with someone, maybe even so jealous of a person that you couldn't even pretend to be cordial with them? Anybody? Only one person. Oh, two. Good. Well, not good, but good. Uh, it was bitter. It was, it was better that you, in, in those situations, and I know from my own personal ones, it would, it would be better if you just didn't even come near the person because your heart was so immersed in the turmoil of your sinful thoughts and assumptions about them that you couldn't do anything but damage the situation. Or, or maybe who here has had an estrangement in your family where you didn't talk to someone for years because of an offense? Maybe... Maybe that's what's happening right now in your life. I know that we've certainly had that in my family. Joseph's brother's hatred was so strong. It was at a depth so profound in their souls that they didn't even have the ability to pull themselves out of it. They couldn't do it. 
From outside looking in, from our perspective, their only hope was for the mighty hand of God to do a work so profound in their lives that they would be humbled from the heart, from the core of their being. You're going to see that hope continue through Joseph's life. But before we close this morning, I want to remind you of another passage from Scripture, Acts chapter 7. I'm hoping that this is a message that whets your appetite to read the life of Joseph. Interestingly, uh, Acts chapter 7, you remember, is uh, kind of the place where Stephen gives a message, right? Stephen, um, one of the apostles. He's showing the, um, or one of the leaders in the early days of Israel, showing the Jewish leaders how they historically and continuously resist those God sent to rescue them. Surprisingly, the first rescuer he accuses them of resisting is Joseph in his sermon. Um, He goes from Joseph to Moses to Jesus. And and in each case, he demonstrates their sinful, rebellious, by the depth of their nature, resistive uh, response to the rescuing hand of God. And so in Acts 7, Stephen summarizes his incriminating sermon. He says, you men... He's talking to the leaders of Israel at this time, the descendants of the brothers of of Joseph. He says, you men, stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, are always resisting the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did so to you. And which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Isn't that interesting? From Joseph to Moses, to Jesus, that progression. I wonder, like with Joseph's brothers this morning, like Stephen says of him and then and them later, is there a chance today that this is directly applicable to your life? The, the response of his crazy, corrupt brothers in their jealousy, their hatred of him, and also the faith by faith feet walked out by Joseph or faithful life walked out by Joseph is there a a chance that you could be resisting the Holy Spirit this morning any of you maybe you've you're a person that's been coming to church for years or, or or maybe never maybe this men's breakfast is the first time you've ever even had an experience with God's church Maybe you're convinced this morning that everybody else has the problem. And maybe you've heard all the preaching and the rescuing hand of God and the beautiful face of Jesus Christ, but but how could you personally have a problem? How is that even possible, you might think? You're a good person. Why would you need a crutch like Jesus? This morning, the Bible the full counsel of God reminds us that you will face judgment. Your sinful rebellion will find you out. You have a problem. You're in jeopardy. You've resisted from a place so deep in your soul like Joseph's brothers in their hatred for Joseph that you're incapable of trumping up genuine trust in Jesus Christ. You can't save yourself. Here's my prayer for you this morning, that that you know that the righteous one has come. I pray that his spirit would move, and I pray that your sin becomes so unbearable that, that the only way out, your only option would be to genuinely 
and faithfully run to Christ for rescue, to hide your soul in Jesus. In fact, you're commanded to give all glory to Christ, to repent and to believe his gospel today. He hung on a cross in your place. He's, he's the rescuer. He, he swallowed a death that you and I both deserve, and, and, he, and we can't swallow that and survive. He did all this to, to, to purchase a people zealous to sing the praises of his wonderful name. Satisfied with his work on the cross, God raised him from the dead and seated him on the throne of his glory, and he reigns now until all his enemies are humbled before him. This is the day that you can run to him. Isn't it interesting how difficult circumstances tempt us to lose hope? As you continue to read through Joseph's life, you can see where they certainly were a temptation to him as well. I pray that your circumstances this morning, guys, by the power of the Spirit of Christ and his victorious work on the cross brings you into a state of hope, the hope of the glory of the living God as you trust him. Please don't put this off. Repent and believe the gospel today, now. I reminded you of Joseph's life this morning. I hope you can see as you read through the rest of it on your own that his life, his heritage, was marked by footsteps of hope in the face of really, really, mega hard things and his footsteps moved based on the promise of his great God not in his stoicism don't be stoic you will fail instead walk with hope founded on the promise hope has feet and we as men leading our families need to move our feet with that hope today okay let's pray father we're so grateful for this word of yours and lord i pray that the holy spirit would impress the the right things on the hearts of these men here today and on me as well thank you that jesus christ is king thank you that his gospel is powerful and thank you lord that you've called us into that proclamation on a great commission that you um, will certainly carry about in christ's name amen